This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Turn on, tune in, and drop out. By the time Timothy Leary uttered those famous words in San Francisco in 1967, the former Harvard psychology professor was already well-known as the high priest of the psychedelics movement. Leary and the rapid expansion in the popularity of psychedelic drugs had captured the world's attention by the mid-1960s. In this moment, from a British documentary series called World Tomorrow, Leary describes an LSD trip. He's seated, cross-legged on the floor, as a child wearing a beaded necklace toddles by. There's a uh, sense of uh, being in communion with powers greater than yourself and intelligence which far outstrips the human mind and uh, energies which are very ancient. You have a sense of uh, the veil is pulled away and for the first time you see how things really are. Of course, uh, uh, God's workshop is very different from what we expect. Uh, People don't talk English. Uh, Most of the forms are molecular and cellular. Uh, They're quite strange and eerie. It's very hard to be prepared for this experience uh, specifically, except uh, the attitude of trust or thy will be done in dealing with uh, mysteries and powers which uh, dwarf your expectations. Not everyone, though, was along for the ride. The movement to bring psychedelic drugs to all was met with great resistance from the federal government, of course, which had first secretly and illegally experimented with psychedelics in projects such as the CIA's MKUltra program. The federal government then later pivoted to viewing psychedelics as a threat as their public use spread. LSD is a big traffic, and that uh, crime will be interested in it, and particularly organized crime. There's no question about that. That was John Finlater, head of the Federal Bureau of Drug Abuse Control, a department created in 1965. Researchers also expressed serious reservations. Scientists such as Dr. Stanley Krippner at Maimonides Medical Center in New York believed psychedelics showed strong promise as treatment for a wide range of conditions, but only under controlled circumstances. He was featured in that 1967 British documentary, World Tomorrow. LSD could be integrated into the general fabric of American society, but we will need additional research to indicate how best this should be done. We want to have research to indicate how it affects the educational process, whether or not it should be used in schools, universities, and colleges. We will need research to indicate what types of uh, mental illness it's most effective for. But the controlled, meticulous rollout of psychedelics research was not what Leary and others had in mind when they envisioned integrating the drugs into American life. In 1966, Timothy Leary appeared on The Merv Griffin Show. He told Griffin he'd already taken LSD 311 times and predicted that one day you would too. And I'll say to your uh, viewers, uh, within 10 or 15 years, Psychochemicals which expand consciousness and accelerate the mind and open up uh, the wisdom that's inside will be just as common as books are today. And when your kid comes home from school, you won't say to him, what book did you read today? Uh, you'll say, uh, which molecule did you use to open up which Smithsonian Institute or which uh, Library of Congress uh, exists inside your own mind? I know that sounds far out, but everything, every new uh, advance in science just seems impossible. 
how can you use drugs to uh, open up your mind as an educational tool? Well, enter President Richard Nixon. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. June 17, 1971, Nixon announced the federal government's $100 million war on drugs, both abroad and at home. His administration passed the Controlled Substances Act, which included making all psychedelics a Schedule I drug, making them both illegal and effectively banning all research using the drugs. In order to fight and defeat this enemy, it is necessary to wage a new all-out offensive. I have asked the Congress to provide the legislative authority and the funds to fuel this kind of an offensive. This will be a worldwide offensive dealing with the problems of sources of supply as well as Americans who may be stationed abroad wherever they are in the world. It will be government-wide pulling together the nine different fragmented areas where, within the government in which this problem is now being handled. And that would be it for almost 50 years. Scientists who wanted psychedelics to stay in the lab and Timothy Leary, who wanted the drugs out in the world, both were shut down by the enforcement power of the federal government. Well, a half century later, the times, they are a-changin'. When it comes to psilocybin in Oregon, well, you could call us trailblazers or guinea pigs or maybe both. The Beaver State has the nation's first regulatory framework for legal psilocybin services, and that's thanks to Measure 109 that was passed by voters back in 2020 with 55% of the vote. The movement to decriminalize psilocybin, or magic mushrooms, began in the last decades, and several cities have decriminalized its use. And on January 1st of this year, Oregon became the first state to allow adult use of psilocybin. And those psychedelics remain Schedule I drugs. In 2014, a group at Johns Hopkins University was the first in the country to obtain regulatory approval to conduct psychedelic research on healthy volunteers. And since then, other research groups have also received federal approval. So that brings back to mind those tensions from the 1960s, the divide between people who want psychedelics for all and scientists who believe in restrained use only in the lab. Will we relive those tensions? Or could things get even more complex? Because in the 21st century, when legalization is on the horizon, big money investors aren't far behind. How could they influence the renewed use and slow spread of psychedelic drugs? That's what we're going to be talking about today. And we're joined by Amy Lynn McGuire. She's a professor of biomedical ethics and director of the Center for Medical Ethics and Health Policy at Baylor College of Medicine. She joins us from Houston, Texas. Professor McGuire, welcome to On Point. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I first wonder if you might describe sort of what um, precipitated this resurgence in both the public and scientific interest in psychedelics about a, a decade or so ago. Yeah, so as you mentioned, the um, research use of uh, psychedelics and study of psychedelics really began again in the 1990s. Um, and there have been a couple of groups that have really spent quite a bit of time researching the therapeutic potential of different psychedelics, primar 
largely in psilocybin, but other uh, psychedelics as well, to treat mental health disorders, uh, pain, cancer, end-of-life care, things of like that. And um, in 2017 and 2019, respectively, the FDA actually named both psilocybin and MDMA breakthrough therapies for treatment of both post-traumatic stress disorder and uh, treatment-resistant depression. So those were that's a really major change then from the from the federal government's viewpoint, isn't it? It is. I think it's um, it's following the the da- the early data, the early evidence um, suggesting that these substances, when used therapeutically, could have really profound impacts on uh, people's lives. People who have been suffering for a very long time with mental health disorders. Yeah, well, we're going to talk about public interest in psychedelic drugs in just a second. But but tell me a little bit more about that period in the late '90s, early 2000s, because. From my understanding, after um, psychedelics were made Schedule One drugs, almost all, if not all, uh, scientific research into the drugs stopped for decades, right? But, but was there a connection between the kind of research that had been done in the 50s and 60s and the kind of research that uh, uh, was uh, renewed in the late 90s? Was there a connection between those two? Well, I think there were still some scientists who were really... Um very committed to trying to study the therapeutic potential because remember in the 50s and 60s, the research that was being done, the legitimate research that was being done was really quite promising. Um, And tens of thousands of of patients received psychedelics through clinical trials. Um, There was a lot of uh, research that was done both in the United States and Canada on the treatment of alcoholism and and other substance use disorders that showed great promise um, for the potential of this to really um, transform people's lives. So there, there, it didn't. the interest in that and the enthusiasm about it from a scientific perspective didn't die uh, when these laws passed. Um, and there were some committed researchers who were really continuing to try to do the research. And in the 1990s, the Drug Enforcement Agency sort of loosened its... Uh, its hold and, and allowed some research to begin. Because they're still Schedule One substances, though, it's it's quite difficult to conduct research. Um, and so you have to have certain uh, special licenses and, and um, access to the substances. So um, that has slowed down the progress of research um, quite a bit. And if, if the FDA, if the DEA were to loosen its um, or reschedule these substances, I think it would open up the research field in, in important ways. A reschedule meaning making it a different level of controlled substance? Yeah. So schedule one means that there's it has a high potential for abuse and no therapeutic potential whatsoever. Um, so the more that the that, that research happens and that there's a, a building uh, evidence base that there could be some therapeutic potential. I think the harder it it becomes to continue to justify these substances being um, scheduled as Schedule One substances, and so they would, the the DEA would need to uh, reschedule them as Schedule Two, which means that they're more ex- e- more easily accessible for research purposes. Do you think that that could happen? Because it seems to me to be kind of surprising. Uh, the rapidity with which both public interest um, and even public activism and then research interest in psychedelics has grown in the past 10, 15 years, 20 years maybe. Yeah, so there there is quite a bit of interest in it. There's, there's sort of a confluence of things that are happening now that I think that make uh, rescheduling these substances much more likely um, in the near future. 
Um, so on the one hand, there is a lot of speculation, um, including by the Biden administration, that the FDA will approve the first psychedelics for therapeutic use in the coming two years. Wow. Uh, Professor McGuire, hang on for just a second. I'll let you pick up that thought when we come back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today we're talking about the fact that on January 1st, the state of Oregon became the first state to allow adult legal use of psilocybin, the psychedelic. And it's the latest and perhaps maybe the biggest expansion uh, in the use of psychedelics in, in this country following uh, local movements to decriminalize and a resurgence of interest in the lab, in research applications for psychedelic drugs. And we're talking about whether this resurgence in interest could end up, lead, end up leading us down the path of Similar tensions that were felt in the 1960s, uh, after which psychedelics were effectively banned in the United States. And I'm joined today by Professor Amy Lynn McGuire. She's the Leon Jaworski Professor of Biomedical Ethics and Director of the Center for Medical Ethics and Health Policy at Baylor College of Medicine. And Professor McGuire, you were saying about how... Um, there's speculation that in the next two years, the Biden administration may approve uh, the first legal medication of, of psychedelic drugs. Tell me more about that. So it wouldn't be the Biden administration approving it, but the Biden administration has come out and um, sort of speculated that the FDA may approve mm. um, the first psychedelic drugs within the next couple of years. And so they're starting to prepare for that. Um, there's been talk about establishing, I don't know if it's been established yet, but a uh, federal task force to kind of think through what would be the uh, implications if FDA were to approve um, one of the uh, a psychedelic for therapeutic use. So, you know, you, we're talking about the tensions between sort of the personal non-medical use of psychedelics and the research or medical use or, you know, research into the medical use of psychedelics that we saw in the 1960s. And I do, I do think that there's similar parallels that we're seeing now. Um, it's a really complex sort of legal and social environment um, going on right now. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. Yeah. So and, and that's there's all different. There's a bunch of different threads within that uh, complex set that I want to explore with you. But before we leave sort of what's happening in 
inside the lab. I, I just want to um, check something because I've been reading some, you know, reactions and, and uh, papers from the early research, again, as you mentioned, into uh, various uh, um, psychiatric disorders to mental health issues, alcohol use disorder. Um, I believe even um, there are potential research projects for in oncology. So a lot of different um, areas of interest here. But some folks are saying that the, the early results are, they're not saying it's miraculous, but they're describing it as, as, as ultra promising. Um, I mean, what, what do you make of that? Is that just like the excitement of being able to do this research again? Or is this really kind of could be uh, groundbreaking uh, efforts here? So I think there are some really promising early uh, studies, but most of them are um, early, right? Yeah. So they're they're small sample sizes. They're um, potentially not super generalizable. We don't know long-term effects, those sorts of things. So there has been a lot of discussion of like, are we overhyping this as we tend to do with new exciting um, innovations or is, you know, this excitement really justified? And I think it's probably a little bit of both. Um, you know, I think that uh, the media has become interested in this. Um, and as you get media attention related to things, you get big headlines and and there tends to be a little bit of overhype of the potential um, findings that we have right now. But on the other hand, I do think that there are some promising early studies that that should um, really encourage us to continue this research and to make sure that we're building a solid evidence base to really understand how and when and under what circumstances these substances can be most uh, useful. Mm. Well, so let's switch over to another sort of quadrant of this uh, new world of psychedelics in the United States. As we mentioned, uh, on January 1st, Oregon became the first state to allow the legal use of psilocybin. So we spoke to Brian Pilecki. He's a clinical psychologist based in Portland, Oregon, and he's training to be a psilocybin facilitator. And he says psychedelics really blow up the traditional medical model, and it's important to be intentional when using them for mental health treatment. They don't quite fit in therapy. They don't quite fit in medication or psychiatry. There's a spiritual aspect to them. You know, psychedelic experiences are very dependent on the set and setting. What you do to prepare a person in the days and weeks leading up to an experience, that matters. How you construct the environment and show up as another person in the room, that matters. How you encourage a client to respond to their experience, uh, whether some challenges came up or some, you know, something really positive came up. That matters, too. Professor McGuire, first of all, what did you think when um, Oregon voters, actually, I should make that clear, it's Oregon voters who first um, voted to allow legal adult use of psilocybin. I mean, what did you think about a, a statewide change like that? Yeah, so I don't think it's very surprising given our current sort of political environment and what we've seen happen with other controlled substances like uh, cannabis. Um, and I think this is, you know, psychedelics are kind of the next generation um, from a legal perspective of, of what we're seeing with regard to uh, the legalization or decriminalization of cannabis. That, that, but it still seems like, um, you know, uh, cannabis and marijuana had to, advocates had to fight a long and, and hard road. Is that sim that's a similar uh, battle that's happened for uh, advocates of psychedelics? Maybe not quite as... Um, 
as sort of openly. I think it, things have been happening behind the scenes. But I also think that cannabis sort of um, laid the foundation that made it easier um, and more acceptable for psychedelics to um, go go this you know go on this path okay i just wonder what you think of um i mean the fact that th- th- what uh, states like or well it, oregon the state and other local jurisdictions when they uh have effectively decriminalized uh psilocybin i mean what they're saying is that adults can just casually use it does that evince an appropriate understanding of you know, what these drugs actually are and what they can do to a person. So, you know, there is this, there's the tension, you've, you've uncovered quite a few tensions, right? So yeah. there is this tension between sort of the federal government and the gatekeeping role that they have um, over these sorts of substances and the states and sort of their their desire to... Um, you know, act independently in terms of whether they criminalize or decriminalize. Then there's the tension um, also between the medical use and the non-medical use. Um, and so Colorado has now also passed a, a, an initiative to decriminalize psilocybin. Um, and both Oregon and, and Colorado are sort of, you know, playing with this medical, non-medical um, boundary of is it going to be acceptable? And, and and again, this is following in the lead of, of cannabis where we saw initially medical marijuana laws being passed where you could use it for medicinal purposes. And then it got expanded to um, personal use and you have dispensaries that are not um, for medicinal purposes that people can access through. So I think we're seeing the same tension um, playing out and it raises, you know, some concerns um, primarily from the perspective of, you know, people who think they're using this recreationally, but they're really, you know, or claim to be using it recreationally or obtaining it recreationally, but then using it for medicinal purposes or, you know, they're self-diagnosing and self-treating. Um, and I think that can, you know, potentially have some um, safety concerns associated with it if there's not appropriate oversight by a medical professional or somebody else. Yeah. You know what's so fascinating to me, uh, Professor McGuire, is in in preparing for today's conversation, uh, I watched that entire 1967 documentary I referenced at the top of the show, mm-hmm. uh, World Tomorrow, where they featured conversations with Ellen Ginsberg, Timothy Leary, other researchers uh, and researchers from the 60s. There's also a totally wild scene in the mm-hmm. middle of it of a Colorado, speaking of Colorado, of a Colorado mom in 1967 with three children who like was regularly taking LSD every two weeks, in fact, um, she and her husband. And it was really helping uh, them sort of deal with not only the tensions of their current life, but unresolved things from their past. But I point this out because she also mentions that her youngest child had gotten a hold of the equivalent of six adult doses of LSD and took it and was this, like, tiny kid on a trip for half a day. Um, And she seemed kind of okay with it. But it got me thinking, we're seeing, you know, in 2023, I mean, there were just a bunch of reports that came out about the rise in, um, uh, you know, children being admitted to hospitals for having taken... um, uh, taking edibles of cannabis um, when they sh- when they shouldn't have. Do you have thoughts about sort of when these things become more accessible? That it's not just the adults, but we have to also think about you know other people who might get their hands on it. Yeah, so absolutely. I mean, that's that's um, very concerning, right? So um, I do think you know we need to have protections in place, and obviously. 
Um, you know, that's true with all, all pharmacologics, right? You don't want children getting their hands on any type of um, substance uh, and, you know, taking a bunch of pills or something like that. Um, but, but it's interesting that you mentioned that because there's actually been a couple of, um, of news articles that have come out over the last year or so that have talked about sort of these more mainstream uses of psychedelics even now. So there was one article that talked about how, you know, young mothers are microdosing right. um, to try to deal with the, you know, stressors of having little kids. And then there was an article talking about how Silicon Valley companies may be encouraging you know, psilocybin retreats for their employees in order to expand creativity or enhance creativity. And there's a lot of, of course, you know, uh, issues associated with that in terms of, of the workplace and things like that. But so I think there is some enthusiasm for using these in a more mainstream way, um, using these substances to deal with sort of everyday stressors. And it, and it does sort of harken back to those stories from the 1960s and raises some similar concerns. So microdosing moms and Silicon Valley bros. We're going to come back to that thought <laughs> a little bit later. But, you know, a little uh, earlier you said that, um, you know, there, there's uh, enthusiasm and hope behind the research potential, um, the renewed research potential of psychedelics, especially if some of them make their way to actually being FDA uh, approved drugs. And I would say that part of that enthusiasm also comes from the investment potential of a whole new class, right, of drugs uh, that could be developed. So I'm thinking that they're, you know, just like with cannabis and the su supposed green wave of investment that uh, that followed it, will we see or are we at the beginning of seeing something similar with uh, psychedelics, Professor McGuire. Absolutely, yeah. Um, there's been some estimates that the U.S. market for psychedelics will reach almost $11 billion by 2027. Um, so there's a ton of potential for companies to invest and make money, and I think people are recognizing that. Um, and they're trying to be very creative in the ways in which they can start to position themselves to be leaders in that sector. $11 billion in the next four years. That's that's one of the estimates one that I've seen estimate. in print. So, yeah. yeah. OK. Wow. Well, so that makes that's what makes this sort of 2023 version of those 1960s tension even more interesting to me. Right. Because now we have investment dollars, venture capital um, and a lot of people who see this as a way to make money as part of the picture. And we spoke to one of those folks. Brom Rector. He runs an investment fund called Empath Ventures. He founded it in 2021. And Empath Ventures invests only in businesses related to psychedelics. Their goal is to raise $10 million, and Rector says they're halfway there. And they've invested in 12 companies so far. Some of those are basically what you might characterize as pharmaceutical companies that happen to be working with psychedelics. These are companies that are trying to get psychedelics that we all know and love approved by the FDA as treatments for things like depression and anxiety and PTSD. Some of these companies are trying to invent new psychedelic drugs. We invested in a clinic down in Mexico that is using psychedelic therapy to help people break their opiate addiction. We invested in a company that makes music to accompany psychedelic therapy and ketamine therapy. Obviously, we expect to make you know, some kind of positive return. And Brom Rector also told us that he believes psychedelics offer way more investment potential than even cannabis. The world of psychedelic molecules is massive. So rather than kind of betting on the success of, you know, a single plant, you 
it's almost like, to use the investing analogy, it's almost like psychedelics is a portfolio of different molecules. If it turns out that, you know, one of these drugs ends up not being popular, there are still, you know, hundreds of other ones that have a chance at becoming becoming adopted broadly. So that's uh, Brom Rector, who runs an investment fund called Empath Ventures. Professor McGuire, what impact do you think um, investors could have on the research and development of the use of psychedelics? Well, huge, huge impact, right? So, so uh, commercial interest always sort of um, has a large impact on the way that things um, evolve uh, because there's a lot of power and there's a lot of motivation um, when you're dealing with money. Um, so, you know, I think it's interesting because there's there's two potential ways that this could go forward. Um, and and this, com- this harkens back to sort of that tension between state regulation and legalization and widespread sort of social distribution of these substances and more um, controlled clinical trials for therapeutic use. So the tension there is that the more widely available these substances become, the more difficult it becomes to conduct these controlled clinical trials to better understand their therapeutic potential because it's difficult to to enroll people into randomized clinical trials, for example, if they can just go to their local dispensary and, and get access to a drug, um, as, as we said earlier. And so um, that sort of compromises our ability to build uh, a solid evidence base. So the two sort of areas of commercial potential deal with you know, FDA-approved drugs and pharmaceuticals, which is a huge market, right? So if you have FDA-approved drugs for treatment of mental health disorders, which one in five Americans suffer from now, um, you know, then then that's a huge potential from a therapeutic perspective. There's also commercial potential associated with more mainstream um, widespread access through, uh, you know, local dispensaries that's non-medicinal. And so it'll be difficult for both of those sectors to develop at the same time for the reasons that I stated before, but I think there's investment in both sides. Yeah, I was, and uh, you were just saying what I was about to add, that there's big money on both sides pushing yes. I- equally. Well, on the research side, um, we just got 30 seconds before our next break. I mean, those, those investors don't have a ton of tolerance for super long timelines for new drug development. Do you think that that could have an impact on, you know, the kind of research uh, or the pressures that uh, the researchers feel who are re-entering the world of psychedelics? Yeah, I mean, it's really expensive to bring a new drug to market, right? And it does typically take quite a long time. But so there's a lot of pressure to sort of move things quickly and to make sure you're picking the right targets. Well, I still am, uh, my brain is still full of that $10 billion to $11 billion potential in the next few years that investors see uh, in psychedelics in the United States. So, Professor Amy Lynn McGuire, stand by for just a moment. We'll be right back. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. 
No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Today, we are talking about psychedelics in America and the growth in the amount of research in the lab that's happening around psychedelics and public access or public efforts to decriminalize uh, psychedelics, the most recent of which has been the state of Oregon, which on the 1st of January allowed legal use of a, a legal adult use, I should say, of psilocybin. So I'm joined today by Professor Amy Lynn McGuire. She's the Leon Jaworski Professor of Biomedical Ethics and Director of the Center for Medical Ethics and Health Policy at Baylor College of Medicine. Now, Professor McGuire, as you well know, there's an extremely important group uh, that we haven't yet discussed or brought into this conversation about uh, the res- the resurgence of use in psychedelics. And that, of course, are the indigenous peoples of the Americas who have been using psychedelics for thousands of years. Now, colonization and extermination ripped away their right to use psychedelics for generations. But in the United States, slow change began in the 1970s. We were given um, the American Indian Religious Freedom Act of 1978. 1978. So in 1978, uh, my dad was born in 1928. He passed away in 1977. And he served the the United States Army in the Korean conflict. Yet he served the United States Army. He was not free to practice his way of life legally until 1978. Imagine that. This is Sander Ironrope. He is Lakota and lives in South Dakota. And he's chair of the Native American Church of South Dakota and a founding board member of the Indigenous Peyote Conservation Initiative. Sander says it took almost 20 more years of advocacy and legal battles for indigenous peoples to reclaim their right to use the peyote cactus in religious and spiritual ceremonies. And so peyote was given you know, a law, it was allowed allowed by federal policy in 1994, the amendments to the American Indian Religious Freedom Act of 1994. So when you look at this, this peyote here, it was fought for to be able to utilize it in, in a way, in a freedom, the freedom to pray. So what does Sander think about the growing numbers of suburban moms and Silicon Valley tech bros who are microdosing, of investors who see the potential of billions of dollars in psychedelics, and researchers who are also part of the resurgence in psychedelics popularity? Peyote is many things. It has many names. Scientifically, Lofofolia Williamson. It is a spiritual cactus, a spiritual herb a sacrament. It hears, it sees, it's the eye, it's the ear of all things. It's your grandma, it's your grandpa. It's everything to many indigenous people. And many indigenous people recognize it as one of the last medicines. You understand that there were a lot of sicknesses that were upon us. And, you know, they brought smallpox 
they brought these sicknesses upon us. And so when these sicknesses come upon us, you know, grandma and grandpa used this peyote as, as the healer, you know, and they were all night ceremonies, sometimes like four night ceremonies uh, requesting, you know, assistance through plants to really help heal our people. You have people that want to capitalize on psychedelics by opening up this uh, spiritual portal and not really knowing what's going to happen. And these terms that are used, you know, like microdosing, macrodosing, you know, these terms that come up because of the psychedelic movement, or I don't know, they're really unheard of. I mean, okay, how many grams are we going to take? You know, or, or should we microdose? Or, you know, these, it's just, it's just like uh, these babies. You know, I look at these researchers and, and practitioners and they, they have this uh, credentials, this education behind them and they're doing research on and there's more research doing here. But I look at them as babies. We've been using this medicine. I've been using this medicine my whole life. What I'd really like to see is the respect for indigenous people and be the forefront of what is happening here. Because once again, the movement is, in a sense, like the colonizers. And so if we do not want to repeat history, and if we want to restore balance, let's start respecting indigenous perspectives. Let's give them a chance to voice them. You know, there are people that practice and use various types of medicines. Let's find out who they are and let's bring them to the forefront and let's ask them, you know, can we do this? Is there a prior informed consent happening? I doubt it. Sandra Ironrope. He is Lakota, lives in South Dakota, and is chair of the Native American Church of South Dakota and a founding board member of the Indigenous Peyote Conservation Initiative. Professor McGuire, uh, first of all, respond to what Sandra Ironrope said there about the sense that he and, and other, uh, others in the indigenous communities of, of the United States that have long been using psychedelics, they feel almost as if there's a recolonization going on um, as psychedelics become more popular once again. So first of all, um, I, I couldn't agree more with Mr. Ironrope. Um, and, you know, it's interesting. My interest in psychedelics began 30 years ago um, when I started taking trips down to the Amazon rainforest um, of Ecuador and studying with the Shuar uh, Nation and, and subsequently the Achuar Nation, who use ayahuasca, which is another psychedelic plant for um, their religious, spiritual, and medicinal purposes. And so I have great, great respect for um, indigenous populations and how they use these um, these substances. And I think what Mr. Ironrope said, which um, there's two components to this, right? There's respect for the indigenous communities. Um, and it's not just respect for them. There is a tremendous amount that we can learn from them. Um, he's absolutely right that there's, you know, thousands of years of history and experience and, um, you know, oral tradition uh, that has been passed down that can be extremely informative to those who are just starting um, to try to understand 
um, how these plants uh, and the properties within these plants work. So there's respect for for the communities, but there's also respect for the substances themselves. And, you know, it's important to recognize that in indigenous communities, they have a very different relationship with the plants. He talked about the plants themselves being our grandmother, our ancestors, having spirit, you know, being a portal. And they have a very different relationship to the plant. And so when I've in re- more recent years gone down and studied with different communities in the Amazon, um, their response when I've talked to them about, the, you know, the, the Western use of ayahuasca and other um, psychedelic substances has been very similar. It's, you know, I think you're disrespecting the plant I think you're disrespecting the spirit that's sort of part of this whole um, culture and relationship that we have with um, with these plants. Mm. And so I think that's very important to take into consideration. And, and he also talked about um, uh, the sense that researchers or even those folks who want to um, advocate more public use aren't um, you know, as you said, respecting the cultural intelligence of indigenous communities and asking for, uh, you know, their voice or their advice or or their guidance. Uh, do you ha- in any research project that do you know that you know of, um, you know, are indigenous people involved in them? So, um, you know, we're trying to build a research program that focuses on some of the ethical and policy issues associated with um, the use of of psychedelics. A lot of the current research programs are actually doing, you know, research on the potential therapeutic effects. Mm -hmm. And I'm not aware of those really actively engaging, although there may be some out there. I'm just not as as aware. Um, I will say in our research program that we're trying to build um, and the couple of others that I know in, in my field who are trying to do work in this space, there is an active effort to make sure that there are um, indigenous voices at the table um, and that those are taken into consideration. Yeah, it just it does. um, I I really wanted to get to this part of the conversation because we have to just draw a bright line under the fact that tribal members had to fight. They had to fight and advocate and go to court um, to reclaim the the right to use uh, these uh, psychedelic uh, medicines that they had been using for thousands of years, um, and that in a sense, actually, their efforts, um, and especially their legal efforts, helped inform the legal efforts that have come more recently as um, people are advocating locally to uh, decriminalize psychedelics in, in local jurisdiction. Is that is that a fair analysis, Professor McGuire? I think that's a fair analysis, yeah. And I think, you know, one of the big objections is to what we were just talking about, which is this tremendous commercialization um, and the idea that how can you claim intellectual property rights over something that we have, you know, been studying and using and living with and been been in relationship with for for thousands of years, you know. Well, there's one more uh, perspective that I want to quickly touch upon here, and because I'd been mentioning local advocacy for decriminalization or at least uh, allowing adult use of psychedelics, uh, and that has happened in several local jurisdictions before even the state level changes uh, that we've discussed going on in Oregon right now. So Melissa uh, Lavasani is founder of the Psychedelic Medical Coalition. They're lobbying Congress for better policy around psychedelics. And she found uh, psilocybin and ayahuasca herself as she was suffering from debilitating postpartum depression. And she previously led the Decriminalized Nature Movement in Washington, D.C., which successfully pushed a 2020 measure to reduce penalties for some psychedelic plants in the nation's capital. 
I think that people have, should have the right to put whatever they want in their bodies and they got to deal with the repercussions of it, positive or negative. In the real world, I think that's a very difficult argument to make because as soon as you get marked with, oh, you're decrim people, okay, we'll get back to you when we figure out what to do with cannabis. And even at that point, they don't want to get back. Just like that word itself is really loaded. She also says that psychedelic advocates need to strike a delicate balance between pushing for reform and setting realistic goals to get lawmakers on board. We have to be sure that we ride the wave, the push and pull that's happening, and ensure that what we're promoting pushes the boundaries just enough that we make lawmakers slightly uncomfortable but not so uncomfortable that there's this complete backlash. Because I believe that's what's happened with cannabis. There was so much push, push, push on cannabis reform instead of thinking practically and incrementally, like what can we do now so that we can create our champions in Congress for this. Professor McGuire, as we round to the last few minutes of today's conversation, how would you describe what the regulatory system around psychedelics currently is? So currently the regulatory, you mean what are the current laws around it? Is yeah, it, or, yeah, or is it a sensible one as well? <laughs> well, I think right now there's a lot of uncertainty from a regulatory perspective. I think, um, you know, there's sort of this moment in time where everybody's sort of like, what do we do? Um, and nobody really has the answer. So, you know, the FDA is can is considering whether it ought to, um, you know, whether there's a sufficient evidence base to move forward with approval of any of these psychedelics. Meanwhile, they're illegal and considered to have no therapeutic benefit as Schedule One substances under the Controlled Substances Act. As we talked about, states are pushing to decriminalize, which still does not make them legal because they're federally illegal under the Controlled Substances Act. We saw with cannabis that there was an active sort of movement from the federal government to say we're not going to enforce um, the either the FDCA or the control or the Controlled Substances Act against um, cannabis. And it's unclear whether they'll do the same thing. So will the federal government come in and in those states, in Oregon, for example, and say, yeah, you've decriminalized it, but this is still illegal mm -hmm. um, federally, and we're going to come in and enforce that law. So there's a lot of uncertainty with regard to that. And there's a lot of um, opportunity right now to develop sensible, evidence-based policy. But we really need to kind of get all of the voices um, stakeholder voices at the table, including indigenous voices, as we just discussed, yeah, yeah. Um, and make sure that the policies that we're developing make sense. Well, in the last minute that we have here, then, circling back to where we started about those tensions in the 60s between the democratizers of uh, psychedelics, people who wanted to keep it in the lab, and of course, the federal government that shut it all down, what do you think is the most important lesson to be learned from that period? Um, I, think, I think that I'm a huge proponent of, of research, and I don't just mean like research into the therapeutic potential of psychedelics, but also the kind of research that I do, which is really sort of what are all of the different perspectives? How do we think about this um, sort of from a ethically robust, conceptually, you know, um, conceptually robust perspective? Um, and how can we sort of inform our policies without being, you know, inform policies going forward without being just reactive to things that happen based on extreme cases or extreme news stories. Right. So that, that sort of extreme reaction seems to be part of what happened. 
uh, in the 1960s and 1970s. So absolutely. Professor Amy Lynn McGuire, she's the Leon Jaworski Professor of Biomedical Ethics and Director of the Center for Medical Ethics and Health Policy at the Baylor College of Medicine, speaking to us from Houston, Texas. Professor McGuire, it's been a great pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. <laughs> 